Hey everybody, and welcome back to What Would the Smart Party Do? We're back with the chat. It's me over here, and it's Gaz over there. Hello, mate. Hello. How's it going, Baz? All good? It's going really good. Yeah, really good. Not as good as Critical Role, I dare say. At the time well. recording, it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's less than two days into their Kickstarter, and they've already made about $5 million, okay. which is so, By the time this lands... What it's going to be? What does that make it even? Eight figures, ten million dollars plus. I was going to get there easily, and yeah. then they'll have that certain end as well, which will make it even more bonkers. How does this happen? <laughs> so this is for a, a cartoon of a game campaign that they have played previously. But mm-hmm. well, cool. If more money's coming into the industry, that means they're going to make more hashtag content, and it gets more people playing games, and that's all good for everybody. Certainly is. But like a, like a lot of content producers, as we are. We are immensely, immensely grateful for every dollar we get. But you can't help but get a little bit of green-eyed monster about this sort of thing. I think perhaps, Gaz, the answer is you get your Warhammer campaign and I'll draw some stick men and announce it as a cartoon follow-up for that actual play that we've done two episodes yeah, of. Yeah. Could you do like a flip book where you're like, you, you pull out the stick man moving forward but on each page uh, you flip the oh, book? Don't, don't even joke with me about it. That is a genius idea. That's happening now. Let's do it. Get scribbling. I'll, I'll do I'll, it on I'll... the post-it notes. <laughs> and while we're talking of uh, funding, thanks very much to Chris and Martin, our latest two patron supporters, which allows Baz to buy his post-it note books to draw little statement <laughs> parting the stories on, which is what we need to keep us going, frankly. And all of the patrons as well. We've not not forgetting any of you long-standing people who've helping us fund the podcast, pay for microphones and hosting costs and all manner of sundries. Yeah, thanks, guys. You put an ostrich feather in our at, which is what we need for our gaming shenanigans. Really appreciate your support. Thank you very much as well to anybody who just presses like or share on their social media button of choice. It actually does make a big difference. It does bring new listeners into the podcast. And it means that if we have enough listeners, we can go to people, we can go to guests and say, seriously, come on, we've got more than just the usual two listeners this week. It's worth your time and trouble. And, uh, and this week, uh, I think we landed... A, a really lovely big fish of gaming. Indeed, talking of liking and sharing, he shared quite a lot. Ken Height, a very likable man and uh, knowledgeable, lots of games under his belt, lots of design and writing credits, uh, and he had plenty to say, didn't he, Buzz? He certainly did, yeah. I mean, a real pleasure. I mean, Ken Height's been, um, he's been writing the sort of books I like to read now for oh, 40 years, maybe. It's a ridiculously long amount of time. He has, to his credits, The Fall of Delta Green, Knight's Black Agents, Trail of Cthulhu, Bubble Gumshoe. Uh, I mean, I could go on. And Nephilim, which we talk about as well. We do. So this goes, this goes way back to the 80s. And, and a real sort of connoisseur of all things gaming. And, uh, of course, one of the co-hosts of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, which is uh, one of the very few podcasts in existence. It's got more episodes than we have. And I don't know if we'll ever catch them. What, what, a, what a lovely erudite man, um, and he's got some great stories to tell and some great opinions on games and gaming, and I think you're going to like this one a lot. Yeah, for sure. If you don't like this one, there's something wrong with you. Uh, yeah, Ken has just got this, uh, a broad knowledge, a really lovely person to speak to, uh, loads of a deep well, shall we say, of, of knowledge and, and gaming history behind him as well. So it's not just things like Nephilim from the 90s. We also talk about his brand-new things like Vampire that he's worked on, uh, and he's just been involved in so much stuff that, frankly, this episode is going to be longer than the usual hour, listeners, because we just couldn't pack it all in. And uh, we will have to get him back on again for another hour, I think, because there's just so much to talk about. 
Yeah, there is. Uh, we had a bit before where we found out the price of oysters in Chicago, and we had a bit afterwards, which I think we'll keep in private vaults for now for everybody's sanity. I but think so. yeah, here it is. Without further ado, here's at least an hour in the company of me, Gaz, and Ken Height. The Smart Party are raising funds to help with the running costs of the show. We use Patreon, which is kind of like a modern magic item that turns you into a connoisseur of all that is good in gaming. To show your support, just head over to patreon.com slash thesmartparty. You can donate a dollar, a credit, a copper piece, or a fiver per month. It all goes into the portable whole of web hosting costs and helps us look after you every month with new Smart Party content. Patreons get a big thanks from us, some backer-only goodies as and when, and the warm, confident glow of the just and righteous to help you sleep at night. Join the Smart Party at patreon.com today and tell all your friends tomorrow. Cheers! And so, dear listeners, here is the man himself, Mr. Ken Hyde. How are you doing, Ken? Doing good. How are you guys? Yeah, really good. Lovely have you on thanks for oh, dropping by from the other side uh, of the thanks world. for the invitation man <laughs> yeah we're living the dream over here mm-hmm. so uh one of the first things i want to talk to you about now we've got you is uh vampire the new edition i picked yeah. it up recently and uh, gave it a quick run out uh quite like it um i have mixed feelings about some of it so probably the, the wisest decision for me at this point is to ask you what was your involvement and, and what how much of a um a guide you liked me there how much writing did you do what what was you're a real driver behind Vampire. I mean, my involvement, I was brought on to be the lead designer. And uh, very fortunately for me, uh, I had Kareem Wamar, who is uh, at White Wolf, had come up with the core of the hunger mechanic, which, mm. I mean, when you hire me, you're saying, I need a death spiral in my game. And <laughs> Kareem had come up with a great one. So that saved us a lot of, you know, sort of figuring things out. And then it was a matter of, him and me bouncing, you know, how should humanity work off of each other? And me saying, get rid of botch dice because they're stupid and break the math and ruin the fun of playing a supernatural creature of the night. I mean, not that we're not already ruining the fun, but we're ruining it in the role-playing direction, <laughs> not in the mechanics direction. Um, so the so things like that, I put in criticals because I think that that adds to the sort of operatic quality of vampire and also the supernatural quality of vampire. And it gave us an excuse to do messy criticals, which uh, let your beast come out because... Uh, frenzy is um it's an omnipresent threat but it does not necessarily rear its head as often as maybe it ought to given its prominence in the in the mythology but my my sort of my remit over and above making the engine work and making a game that you would expect to be a 21st century design was making a game that had the same feel and the same sort of core experience and core i don't say message because um you know as sam goldman says messages are for Western Union, but this sort of the core idea that the nineteen ninety one first edition did that being a vampire is is a tragedy. You're you're a character in a tragedy, a, a tragic horror story, and you are suffering from this condition. And this condition is not a good condition, despite the fact that it makes you turn invisible and makes you immortal. So making it a, a game as as the tagline goes of personal horror was a big part of it, and then also. Uh, political horror was the uh, the thing that got added to the tagline, personal and political horror. So a lot of the other part was just sort of working out what's going to be the role of things like the, you know, surveillance state in a world with vampires. And uh, parts, cracks in that wall had shown up in previous World of Darkness work. And so we just sort of said, yes, let's embrace it. Let's push the vampires back into their neo-feudal status that they were again in first edition. Let's um, uh, have 
the NSA be hounding them the way that the NSA hounds, you know, terrorists and money launderers and people the NSA thinks look at it funny and then present that as a threat to the vampires that is is credible and scary and good uh, because it, you know, asks questions about, well, am I okay with having an NSA surveillance state if it keeps us safe from vampires or do I think that even vampires deserve civil rights? You can ask all kinds of questions. You can ask that as a vampire uh, in the game. And it's, uh, you know, that political question has broken uh, the, the Camarilla apart a little bit. So the Anarchs are in full-fledged revolt. We got all kinds of great stuff that happened with the setting. A lot of that was stuff that the White Wolf guys had already come up with. And then it was up to me to sort of pull it into the rules and pull it into uh, making it possible. And then every now and again, there are things like something that has happened in all vampire games, I'm sure, and has happened in a lot of vampire fiction, is that you have a flashback to sometime when the vampire was, you know, younger in, in the 1880s or the or whatever, or World War II, and they did something that has relevance to the story now. And I'm like, let's let's provide mechanical support for that so you can actually play that at the table and know what that feels like and give yourself a mechanical reward for doing it, doing something that's so core a part of the immortal uh, genre and certainly even a part of the vampire genre. And then little bits of things that I saw were always part of the always part of the game experience and even part of the you know sort of the written out here are things you might do but there were never any rules support for and the goal is just you know in, in my philosophy if a game is about a thing there should be a mechanical at least a reward for it if not a mechanical system for it it should touch on the mechanics in some way because otherwise you can just say that every game is about everything which mm-hmm. is not true right yeah, absolutely. and then I wound up, you know, uh, reskinning a lot of the old vampire text and things like the character generation system. I wrote a big chunk of the, uh, a big chunk of the cities and a big chunk of. I mean, I was sort of the, the cleanup hitter. Uh, we had a lot of good people write a bunch of stuff, and then I sort of came in and at the very last minute, I'm Frankensteinishly sewing it together and painting it over with <laughs> alchemical fluids. Uh, the the, um, the vampire uh, thin blood alchemy was a thing that I sort of came up with as a thing that would let you have some of the fun of thin bloods and then also some of that sort of cocktail culture, street drug culture, a, a sense of something that someone, you know, who was my age in 1991 would recognize as somehow part of their life, as opposed to caring about, you know, 17th century grimoires, which is more of a me thing, I think. Yeah, sure. I mean, admittedly, it was also a me in 1991 thing, but still, <laughs> the goal is if, if you're a if you're a teenager or a 20 year old, let's have something where you're playing these young vampires that feels maybe a little more like your life. That it's mashup a discipline instead of just a straightforward. You know, this is when your blood gives you a point and dominate. Go knock yourself out. <laughs> yeah, I did get that from the initial text actually when I was reading it. I was like. Why is he still banging on about clubs in Berlin? I don't go clubbing anymore. I'm in my forties now. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know, maybe this isn't targeted at me. You're third edition. That's the edition that's like, oh my god, these kids—they're killing us. <laughs> <laughs> so we kind of jumped into vampire then. I didn't explain what it was. So don't worry, dear listeners, if you've never played vampire before, me and Basil go back at some point and do a proper world of darkness session to to, to fill you in. But basically, you're playing supernatural vampires funnily enough but in the modern day what i want to pick out there from the sort of thing you were saying is something that me and basil discuss when we play games and it's trying to keep your mind on what's the mission what we're we doing here what's this all about and that that came through very clearly and in terms of your design work that you are thinking about 
well, what's the tagline of the game? What's the game about? What my character's supposed to do? And then immediately developed more of that stuff and then made it mechanical as well and said, and it is a game, so what rules to support that? So is that right. like your design philosophy? Is like, what's my mission? Do you have that on like a post-it note above your computer screen and go, this is what I'm trying to achieve and, and just head for that? Well, I mean, I, I think that the, the I, one of the things I've picked up from Robin Laws, my cross-border uh, partner in crime, is that uh, games, role-playing games, have a core story. And the core story can be we're a bunch of uh, guys who kill monsters and take their stuff, which is a great core story. Or uh, we are opposing the implacable Cthulhu mythos, no matter the cost on our own sanity, which is a great core story. And so you ask, what's the core story? And if the game doesn't let you tell that story and ideally tell that story in a really cool and interesting way, then you did, either you didn't have a core story or the game is not doing everything it could to help you at the table. So that's my... My design philosophy is a big word, but I think it's my design sort of, you know, uh, craft. Yeah, right. So uh, are vampires, do you consider vampires to be heroes? Have you got any sympathy for them? Oh, God, no. I mean, I have the sympathy of, I mean, you can have a sympathy for Macbeth, right? You can have Mm -hmm. sympathy for the the tragic protagonist in any tragedy. I mean, that's, that's part of the point, right? I mean, Aristotle says the core of tragedy is horror and pity, right? And mm. uh, Mina feels sympathy for Dracula, for God's sake, even though he raped her, because she's a very good person. But I think that if you sort of are looking at vampires ironically, you know, from the distance, no, they're they're monsters. They're horrible, horrible things. And finding that you are one should be, if not a trauma, it should be a uh, you know an occasion for trauma. You know, rediscovering the fact, oh, right, I live by murdering people. I, I, I keep slipping my mind. That should not be a, well, look at that, time to refuel moment, unless you're playing literally a sociopath, uh, or are literally a sociopath, I suppose. But, um, no, I mean, the, the, the vampiric existence, and this was, wait, this was in the meat and bones of the 91 game, is that it's a tragedy. It's an operatic uh, tragedy that you have been, you know, condemned to this, that you will never see the sunlight, that you have to feed on the blood of the living. You know, that's an awful thing to be. And so you can have vampires who are protagonists, which is not the same thing as heroes necessarily. And it's, uh, you can have sympathy or empathy or pity for them without saying, hey, they're the good guys. And you can certainly in the world of darkness, and I think even in the real world, find people who day to day are probably at least as bad as vampires. Mm -hmm. And so if your notion is, we're vampires, but we're eating drug dealers and terrorists. I can see that being a sort of a dark, noiry, gritty kind of a fun game to play. But you're always grappling with the fact that I'm no better than this scum that I'm cleansing, right? I'm not, I'm not Batman, right? I'm a monster. Yeah, yeah, I guess. But TV shows like The Wire have someone like Oh My Little who only ever preyed on the drug dealers, but he he just had a certain amount of. He's like one of the fan favorites. Well, yeah, I mean, the the charismatic villain goes way back, right? I mean, that was part of the the, the draw of the Gothic was, you know, people would read the Gothic and they'd say, oh, that Melmoth is bad. I hope he dies, but not soon, you know, and (laughs) making making the villain, you know, cool and sexy and interesting. I mean, there's a reason Darth Vader has the awesome armor and everyone else is dressed like a hobo in Star Wars. Oh, he's not the best uniforms of the villains. <laughs> so there's been a lot of stuff like, I don't know, True Blood, the TV show, and there's obviously Twilight, and there's just hundreds of TV shows and, and young adult novels or things like that about vampires. So is there anything consciously you did 
when you were developing the game to kind of like touch into any of that, but without making it all sparkly vampires and love stories with, you know, 200 year old vampires wanting 16 year old brides or anything like that. I mean, is there any kind of a, a thoughts about appealing to that mass market or why we just purely focused on the, no, I've just got to update the nineties vampire game and keep it about vampire. Well, one of the things that we did in our, in our version of vampire is that uh, to maintain your humanity, and this is something that I stole from the Requiem, which was another great vampire game that White Wolf did. Uh, is that your humanity is defined by and defended really by the connections you have with actual humans, that you have these touchstones among the human world. And absolutely, the high schooler you have a crush on can be one of those touchstones. If you want to play out the Angel and Buffy, uh, Edward and Bella story, there you go. That's right there. But because you're inside, not the outside teen viewer, you know that Edward is a horrible predator and that Angel is a monster who hates himself. And in, in fairness, in Buffy, they get a pretty good notion that Angel is a monster who hates himself. Uh, they let it slip a couple of times, but, you know, they their hearts are in the right place. But you, the vampire, should never be in a position where it's just, this is a game about going out and picking up chicks because, first of all, boring, and second of all, kind of gross. <laughs> but certainly, if you're a 100-year-old dude, uh, over and above the fact you're a serial killer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, this one, I mean, obviously, again, those those books aren't for me. So I know. Yeah. I'm not, I'm I mean, and, and the thing is, if you want to play a, a vampire romance game that's about, you know, uh, struggling with your feelings and, and meeting, you know, the right person for you, Avery Elder's game Monster Hearts is terrific and amazing and mm. great. And it does that. And it's a game about that. Yeah. And there's a game of Buffy the Vampire Slayer that does Buffy really well. So. I'm not saying this is the only vampire game you can ever play. I'm saying this is the vampire game that Mark Reinhagen and Andrew Greenberg and Justin Achille made in the 90s that was epical and amazing and drew women and uh, uh, people of you know non-standard Wisconsin lifestyles into the gaming world in droves that absolutely appealed to that sort of dark romance, if you want to, of the vampire and but it did not appeal to it by mollycoddling them and saying, "Oh, you're all right." You know, it appealed to them by offering them genuine moral questions, and that's what the game should do, right? That's what it's about. Yeah, it's not even the only vampire game you've written, though, is it, Ken? No, it is not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wrote a different game called Knights Black Agents, in which vampires are the thing that you hunt and kill, uh, yeah, which yeah. is my personal uh, vampire opinion. If we're getting there. And in fairness, when uh, uh, Martin at White Wolf called me up to say, do you want to write vampire? I said, you, you've seen Knights Black Agents, right? You know that I'm a thousand percent team Van Helsing. And he said, yes, you've basically written vampire. We just want you to do it again from the vampire point of view. <laughs> <laughs> but I said, well, that's, that's, a, that's a selling point. I mean, that, that definitely made me think these guys don't want to make it, you know, puffy shirt heroes with katanas they wanted a game about vampires <laughs> which is part of what i loved about you know the the old old vampire back in 91 when i saw it that and the graphic design which was amazing mary lee did a great job and the freely guys did a great job with our graphic design i think it sort of lives up to that standard as well of being a gorgeous game on the market so i think role-playing games have definitely hit a resurgence recently like dnd is bigger than it's ever been and that kind yeah. of stuff um, and, and speaking to kate welsh uh, one of the dnd designers a couple of weeks ago she was mentioning that oh vampires a game yeah it seems to be doing quite well i wonder what your thoughts are around when vampire came out originally in 91 that was like a big moment as you say it brought all kinds of people into the habit that hadn't been there before and it was like the first 
real sort of like left turn in gaming that wasn't just about a group of adventures doing something. It was something completely new and different. Do you think with the resurgence of D&D and everything like that, now that this game's come out at about the same sort of time through a life cycle, it feels almost like we did back then in the day, if you know what I mean, when Vampire turned up, it's not got quite the same zeitgeist moments. But do you think there's an element of uh, a lot of D&D players now might be looking for something different and see vampires in the same way that we did back in the day? Or I mean, I, I certainly hope that they give us a, a shot and, and play it, but you can't put lightning back in the bottle. No. I mean, I, I would love to write the game that does for the today's gaming market what Vampire did in 1991. But Vampire can't be that game because, first of all, it comes with 25 years worth of backstory, sure. uh, which Vampire did not. It has, you know, all kinds of other legacy issues. It has, it's got to appeal to old guys like you and me as well as young, uh, fun kids. So there's a lot of things that are happening that mean Vampire can't be Vampire, even though Vampire is in my perhaps prejudiced opinion, the best vampire. I mean, the game that, that, that's come along and sort of blown open that uh, that paradigm actually came along during the last D&D boom because it was um, the sort of the whole clot of indie, indie games and story games that came out in 2002, 2003. So games like um, uh, Shooting the Moon, games like uh, Sorcerer, games like um, My Life with Master, games like um, uh, Dogs in the Vineyard, all those that came out in that first you know, early part of the, of the millennium, those games, I think, have done a lot to, uh, they certainly appeal to uh, the same sorts of non-traditional audiences that uh, Vampire appealed to, and they offer all kinds of different story material than a gang of guys with weapons who fight monsters for good or ill. And, and so some of that explosion has already gone off. And mm-hmm. I've, you know, I've been part of that, you know, from the fringes and from in, in the rooting section since then. I mean, I saw it happen in, in live, you know, in live space and said, this is a new thing. This is the beginning of a new golden age of design is these guys coming out and, and, and women uh, coming out and, and making games like uh, like blowback and, and, and all the kinds of games that are about these sort of interior questions and, and games about romance, which is a subject that is only the core story of all Western literature, but we've never gotten around to making a role-playing game about it until Emily Kerboss. So, I mean, I, I think that, uh, that that sort of explosion that you talk about has kind of already happened and we're still seeing it expand out because that, uh, the combination of creative freedom and low barriers to entry and distributed design knowledge just keeps growing. I mean, it's a, it's a, one of the few positive, you know, things you can say about uh, the interconnected world is that it does let things like that spread. So, uh, some some kid, you know, in in uh, Oklahoma City doesn't have to wait until he goes to Chicago to discover reggae because um, <laughs> he can just type reggae into YouTube and be just as reggae as anybody. Um, and, and same thing with game design, right? Yeah, definitely. Do you think those sort of games inform your decisions as well? Because it's something that I've definitely seen a lot of quote-unquote mainstream games is that I see a mechanic and, and someone online will be like, oh, the, the guys who wrote this are amazing. And you think, yeah, but some guy in Scotland did that mechanic 20 years ago in his bedroom. And, you know, I'm well, like, I mean, well, missing at least the game. If the guy who made that mainstream game is, is a decent person, they will, in the back of their game, say, oh, I took this mechanic from that cool Scottish game by Malcolm Craig, probably. Yeah, or, or Gregor yeah. Hutton. Um, yeah. uh, One of those two, right? But uh, well, I mean, I'm sure there's other cool Scottish designers, but those are my the ones I like best. Um, <laughs> sorry, rest of Scotland. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but 
but, uh, many but I mean, when I write, when I wrote Knights Like Agents, I used a ton of uh, of indie uh, story gaming uh, techniques and uh, tools and, and mechanics, and I gave uh, full credit because that's how we learn as a community. Is you don't say, "Ken, your vampire, your vampire is amazing." It's like it is, but it's because I stole it from Blowback by Elizabeth Sampat. That's why it's amazing. I just recognized how amazing it was and said, "Let's use it to fight vampires," and and that sort of you know that that's how science works. Credit your sources, right? So yeah. everything works. Yeah, it's fun that, speaking to Kate as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. She's come from the video games industry, where stealing's just like par for the course. So I think she shocked yeah. a lot of the colleagues when she turned up at Wizards and said, "So how much stealing do we do?" <laughs> we just looked at her like, "No, we borrow over here. We don't steal." Mm-hmm. So we've, we've touched upon the nice black agents there. What do you think of the strength of having something like the Gumshoe system behind that, and, and perhaps be a bit more narrative than a? an arguably more crunchy game like Vampire or more of the mainstream games, per se. Like, um, Do you think it, it gives you more freedom to make better stories with a lighter-touch real set or a framework rather than a, a nitty-gritty real system? I mean, one of the... I mean, the great strength of, of uh, Gumshoe in general uh, that I borrowed for Nice Black Agents is that it makes investigation much faster. Uh, even over and above uh, the question of, you know, any of the other decisions, single die, resource management, all the other bits of gumshoe, just the fact that you don't have to stop and roll speeds the game along, just in play, as well as allowing you to model competent characters, which is something that, you know, a lot of us grew up on D&D, and so we think zero to hero, so the characters that we start playing begin as these sort of schlemiels that you wouldn't read a novel about or watch a TV show about, much less want to inhabit. So... The notion that Robin had in Gumshoe to say, with esoterists, start as really competent guys who are good at your job and go from there. That's what that's what most stories are about, or certainly most genre stories. Yes, I love that. Let, let's have some of that. I mean, I'm all for Frodo learning to be a man as he walks endlessly across the plains of Mordor. But also, I'm kind of here for Sherlock Holmes beginning as the world's greatest consulting detective and just screwing with, you know, murderers and you know, rattlesnakes for the rest of his life. I think that's terrific. So I, I like the the assumption of competence. And of course, that feeds very strongly into Knights Black Agents, which is about sort of the thriller, uh, the, the spy thriller. Uh, it's right there on the title. Um, and even the sort of more realistic, uh, quote unquote, you know, sort of John Le Carre style of spy. Smiley is still super competent in what he does. Mm. He's just not out there, you know, parkouring over the roofs of Antwerp. He's not just but he's really good at George smileying. I mean, the, he's still really good at the investigating. So he's still a gumshoe character. And I think that's what gumshoe really brings is that it's not even sort of, sort of the ability to, uh, to empower mystery play, which it does just by giving it a good engine, but just the ability to speed the game along because people can know what they're good at and move in that direction. And you've got a list of things you're good at right there on your sheet. And you can go do them with confidence and know that, yes, if I look for the smear of blood, I'll find it because I've got, points in notice or points in evidence collection. And that's just a really great, you know, way to, to model genre and to tell stories at the table. And then I'm a, a fan of the, uh, of the sort of the simplicity in play. It, it does it, it sort of get out of your way. It has a lower footprint than most games do. Uh, certainly most trad games uh, to use the term. And that's really up to, up to you as the player. I mean, the number of times I've seen on some message board or some comment section, someone say we had such a great game of, Dungeons and Dragons or Traveler or whatever, and we we never rolled the dice once. And it's like, well, first of all, good for you. That sounds great. But second of all, if that's your goal, 
<laughs> there's a faster way to do it than playing GURPS, right? Yeah. I've got news for you, you weren't playing GURPS. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, and, and again, I love GURPS. I think GURPS is a tremendous uh, game for what it does and for the sort of sweet spot of GURPS that sort of, you know, again, that's in sort of Jason Bourne Pulp Hero level. I think GURPS is super strong. And I, like every other game, you can get carried away and tangled up in your own um, uh, uh, nonsense. But if you've got, if you've, uh, if you've able to, if you pull the right clubs out of that bag, you can have a hell of a golf game with GURPS. And the same thing is true, I think, with most well-designed systems. You know, it's certainly true with D&D. &D, it's, it's certainly true with, uh, with Vampire. Uh, and in Vampire, we say, hey, if you prefer a more rules-light system, here's how to do it without doing this. This is why I put in the one-roll combat. So yeah. you can have a, a whole street fight between your vampire clan and a bunch of uh, uh, gun thugs and the rebel bruja and whatever else, and you figure out all the numbers, you roll the dice, and then you tell the story. And the dice just inform you what happened, and you play to that result. And that's that's great, right? Um, and a lot of people do play that, and they do enjoy it. And I think, you know, uh, certainly with... Uh, vampires close ties to the tabletop unity it sort of needs to be in the core book but i think every game is implicitly that if that's what you want to play yeah yeah sure sure can we go back in time a little bit ken and uh, i mean we'll never get right back in time because well yes remind us when did you get started in gaming and being a, a writer well i started i mean i started in gaming in the 70s like you know the yeah. right as the ad and d monster manual came out and we hadn't seen AD&D yet. We'd just seen the, the the blue book, I think. And so this, I my friend of mine gave me the monster manual or loaned it to me. Maybe he thought he loaned it to me and he did give it to me. But um, uh, I spent all summer just looking at this book of monsters and making up monsters. Um, and I didn't know what the rules were. I just sort of interpolated the, the stats based on the other monsters. I knew what vampires were and I knew what dragons were. So I knew that this is about halfway between those or whatever. Um and then, and that you know hooked me on D and D, and I played a ton of D and D in the in you know uh, in high school, which for me again is the late seventies, early eighties. And then in college, uh, I discovered Call of Cthulhu. It was right around. Uh, it was it was it was it was in high school, in fact, that I discovered Call of Cthulhu, and sort of found my new true love through all of college. And and uh, then I came to Chicago, and hooked up with another bunch of uh, grad students, all of whom were gamers and some undergrads who were also gamers and, and science fiction fans. And we started doing sort of, um, we gamed, and then we also riffed on alternate histories. And that led me into writing the proposal for GURPS Alternate Earths with uh, Mike Schiffer and Craig Newmeyer, which we sent into Steve Jackson Games, I want to say in about 90 or 91. And then it took Steve about five years to find it in his slush pile, <laughs> and uh, five years of me seeing Steve at, at Gen Con, by the way, and saying, hey, Steve, what about that proposal? And he'd say, I'll get back to you. And then eventually he did and said, this was a really good proposal. We should write it. And it's like, well, you're not wrong, Steve. And that, and that came out in like 96 or 97, I want to say, is, is when that came out. And then very shortly thereafter, I kind of during that same process, I'd uh, submitted a playtest report of Nephilim to Chaosium. Mm -hmm. uh, because a friend of mine from those old Call of Cthulhu days had gotten a copy of the playtest document and shot it to me, Don Dennis, who now has the Onboard Games podcast. And he uh, said, you're the guy to look at this, Mr. Black Magic Weirdness. And so I uh, I wrote them some some back talk, and Greg Stafford descended from the, uh, the, the, the heavens to send me an email and say, this is great. Can we use it in the book? We'll pay you. What's the next book you're going to write for us? 
Mm. So in about, you know, four or five months, I had two game writing contracts and in the mid nineties. And so then I just started writing stuff. And eventually my wife said, rather than be a grumpy uh, guy who works for an insurance company, why don't you be a poor guy who works for, uh, who writes games? And so, (laughs) (laughs) but much happier. And we made that choice. And then um, I got to do a couple of Star Trek games back to back. And now I'm a middle-class guy who writes games and is still much happier. (laughs) Ken Ralston says some of the sort of things to me about being fabulously middle-class. And I thought, well, I I gotta say, you know, um, uh, that middle-class is is nice. If you can get there, I I encourage people. (laughs) So um, one of the games you touched upon there was uh, Nephilim, which I think, did it come from a French game or am I made? Yeah, it was originally a French game. Chaosium licensed it and did a, a, basically a BRP version of it. Yeah, so the, the the French guys I've talked to uh, won't shut up about how great it is. Uh, when I tried Nephilim itself, I think it suffered for me from as one of those games where it's like, this all sounds great. My character's uh, part Charlemagne Knight, part uh, Babylonian priestess, part East End gangster, um, but what do I do? So yeah. it was all cool. Love making characters, but um, right. no how many books I read, I still wasn't quite sure what a gang of Nephilim actually did. And that and that was, I mean, you, you talk about, you know, the sort of the positive learning comes from watching Robin. The negative learning comes from working on Nephilim and having literally everyone on the, the people on the Nephilim mailing list would ask that question, <laughs> not just random, <laughs> random strangers at game conventions who you would you'd understand if they asked that, but people who've been playing Nephilim and read the books are like, I'm still not sure what the, what we're actually doing in this game. And we never really answered that as a design team. I mean, Sam Shirley, you know, God bless him, did as as much as he could. But the game really, and I don't want to damn an entire country because I I love France, but (laughs) French games very are very French. And by that, I mean that they're beautiful and they're gorgeous and they're fantastic and they enrapture you and they look sexy and you just want to sink in and, and smoke a Galois and eat bread and drink wine with them. But as far as actually getting off the dime and doing anything, not always, right? <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and I love them. And for, a, a, for sort of an immersive experience, again, they're great. And I think uh, a lot of... French people, because they're culturally immersed in in that, they figure out what to do with Nephilim, and they have a great time. But us poor Anglophones, we we see that. And I was seeing, you know, the translated French books, which also, there's not something we left out. It's a trick. Let's not tell anyone what to do. <laughs> so the, French, I mean, the French books were like, yes, but what if vampires were snack people? You know, it's like, <laughs> I love it. But you're not helping. <laughs> it makes no sense. Yeah. <laughs> oh god, well, that, that, that's kept me up at night worried about that. And now I'm glad yeah. it wasn't just me. That in fact it was the whole community yeah. didn't know what to do. Yeah, no, no one did. I mean, Chaosium didn't really, and and they were, it was very nice of them to pay me to go on that journey and figuring it out. But <laughs> at some point, um, uh, the, the the card game money ran out, and so we had to we had to say goodnight to Nephilim. <laughs> <laughs> What came after that? Was it um, Unknown Armies? Or have I got my timeline wrong? Unknown Armies does come after that. I have a ah. very minor role in Unknown Armies. Unknown Armies, my role was to read John Tynes's original treatment and, and Greg Stoltz's first rules draft and say, this is amazing, you guys. <laughs> Hardly a chore. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and I sort of, you know, they would ask me, hey, Ken, is there something in real magic that's like this? And I would say, well, sort of like this. And 
And so they, I think I'm credited in one of the editions as the classy old school occult advisor. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I wrote like a couple of paragraphs or something, but it was it was very much John and uh, Greg's show. And I was just uh, the sort of the loud booster and spectator. I was very much the Lester Bangs in that equation. Because I, I always, I don't know, maybe you can help me out with this, but I always think of, of you guys, the, the kind of credits list on UA seems to be like a circle of friends and they've blossomed out to do other projects and so on. And I get the feeling that you guys are, are fairly tight with each other and you, you know what's going on and keep up with each other's work. Is that fair to say? I mean, it, it's, it's uh, John Tynes uh, neglected us uh, for the upper class life of actual games and uh, working for Microsoft, and we've never forgiven him. Um, but, you know, and, and Greg lives in Aurora, which is uh, the western suburb of Chicago, so he and I see each other not as frequently as we'd like, I think, but we do stay in touch, and, you know, you know, we're buddies. And certainly, back in those days, yeah, it was like every rotten 90s movie you ever walked out of. Yeah. A bunch of guys who thought they were geniuses talking forever in a bar. I mean, that was that was our scene, and we were a big part of it, and, and you know, that was, I mean, part of that is just the fun of being young in any artistic circle. I'm sure that if you talk to people who are in their twenties right now doing anything that, that they have the same story that John and Greg and I did. It was just a matter of, you know, not understanding that morning has to happen. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But I mean, out of that, out of that time and out of that circle, you you come back around to Delta green with the fall of Delta green. So you know, that, that circle's been closed a little bit. Well, I presume mm-hmm. there's still stuff to be done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hope so. one, one hopes so. I mean, we're uh, working on the Borellis Connection, which is the uh, Fall of Delta Green campaign that uh, Gareth Hanrahan is uh, spearheading and writing most of. I did the outline, and Gareth is then making me look great, which is the way I like it. <laughs> you do um, that to him a lot. <laughs> oh, God. And I would do it to him forever. This is the best plan in the world. <laughs> Because as I sit there like a Frenchman and say, what if the vampires will sup on people? And then Gareth, you know, doesn't goes off and types 75,000 words. I mean, that's great. <laughs> I would love to do that shit. Um, but uh, I can only talk him into that every so often. Uh, yeah, I mean, that that team, that, that sort of maybe Delta Green wasn't, uh, I, I was a big fan of Delta Green when it came out, and as was Greg. And, you know, I think we both sort of passed the audition with uh, the Unknown Army's experience. And then I read some stuff for Delta Green back in the back in the day that eventually saw print in Targets of Opportunity. And so I was sort of, you know, Delta Green woke from from the jump. And when Shane had the opportunity to sort of expand it and recreate it, he very nicely said, hey, Ken, we'd like you to be a part of this 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 gang. So it's it's a little bit like, you know. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm Ringo. I, I joined the band already in progress, but um, uh, I'm still, I'm, I'm still in the band, right? You still in the album cover, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and then Fall of Delta Green was, was uh, them uh, saying, we, we, not only do we trust you to write part of our book, we trust you to write part of our mythology and do Delta Green in the 1960s and do it for Gumshoe and do it differently than we're answering the same questions over here with the Delta Green system. And that was, you know, first of all, hugely flattering. And second of all, a great opportunity to, you know, kind of make a little part of that, you know, my this, that's my solo album, uh, which is still very much informed by my bandmates' work. <laughs> it feels like the experimental prog version of... Uh, right, yeah. That's right. Well, well, well prog, thank God, is the 70s. But yeah, there's... Yeah, so... <laughs> the roots of it, I guess. Right, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. 
So, I mean, to me, Delta Green, which I've always loved, it, it always feels a little bit like a historical game. So if I run Delta Green now, I want to run it in the 90s in kind of like Mulder and Scully kind of territory right, yeah. and not have, you know, you can't, you haven't got a camera phone. You, you sort of like your cell phone's like the size of your head. It's a brick. Right. It's, um, it's, it's, because it's, it's, it's so part of that zeitgeist when it came out, right? I mean, yeah. it feels so wired into it. So how, how much of the decision to make it um, Vietnam was kind of your idea or that kind of, Asian connection, or was it just was that the, the brief you got, or was it just something that appealed to you? Well, when the when the um, uh, when the new game is was in progress and they were working on it, it was obviously always going to be brought up to date to the modern era. Delta Green post nine eleven, Delta Green in the twenty first century, and I just laughed myself silly as uh, my faultlessly uh, liberal co designers sweated at the notion of having to say mean things about Obama for eight years. And then Trump got in and suddenly a creative firecracker goes off. And they're like, now we can do Delta Green again. A gift. Really it's a beautiful <laughs> gift for them. And God bless them. And, and so, you know, uh, it was always going to be, like I say, very contemporary, very, very modern. And so the gumshoe game couldn't just do that again, because why would you buy two of those? You don't need that. You you, you want modern Delta Green. You have this great, wonderful slipcase, beautiful a primal scream from Shane and Dennis and Greg, you don't need me out there helping. <laughs> so uh, they said, how about you do the fifties sort of the, you know, Nazi hunting crew cut Delta green. And I said, I like it, but let's do the sixties because we know that Delta green ends in 1970. So there's a natural arc, right? It's a, it's a sort of a teleological story of hubris and overreach. And Oh, what, what does that remind me of? Oh, right. Everything else the government was doing in the sixties. And so, Vietnam becomes sort of, in addition to a, a very evocative setting, um, it also becomes a, a sort of a symbolic metaphor for what Delta Green is also doing. They're like, how hard can it be? You kill a few deep ones, you're home for breakfast. And then it's like, oh, no, it turns out it's freaking super hard. <laughs> You've bitten off more than you can chew and you're doomed to destruction. And that's the Delta Green story. And so being able to put it in that timeline, that framework, it was a real gift. And that, and that's kind of why I wanted the 60s. It's not like I have any great, you know, un, unplumbed appreciation for the decade per se. Uh, it was kind of a garbage fire in a lot of ways, but it made a great story and it really fit Delta Green, the same story that was being told in the 90s and the same story that's being told in the modern day. It The the the, the blend is, is very strong there. If you wrote a Delta Green in the, in the 50s or even in the 80s, it would have to be sort of a ridiculously optimistic Delta Green. And so the ironic fun is like, oh, you guys are screwed. But if you write it in the 60s or in the uh, 20 teens, it can very much be about, oh, yeah, I see it. <laughs> Everything's, the wheels are coming off everything. I get it. That makes sense. Yeah, life imitates art. <laughs> right. I mean, it, uh, it would be fun, uh, while I'm just talking nonsense, to do a majestic book that takes place in the 80s. Mm-hmm. That would be called Morning in America. And it would just be about the majestic guys who are out there saving the world and, you know, fighting aliens and talking to the good aliens and, you know, figuring out all this stuff and the sort of this uh, ridiculously optimistic quater mass so that the ironic knowledge of their destruction could be part of the fun. Yeah. And, it, and it would fit a Majestic story because we, we know that the Majestic guys are the people who are ridiculously optimistic about this stuff or have to their mind a, a sort of a cartoonish understanding of how hard it is. And, and that would fit the, the the thematics, but you couldn't set proper Delta Green. I mean, you could set it there, but I think doing a whole campaign of it in the fifties would 
would sort of wind up having to just uh, be subversion for subversion's sake. And what's the fun in that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can imagine something. I did something with Vampire, actually, sort of in the 50s, 60s, which was in the DDR in Eastern Germany. Yeah. Um, but the characters are playing mortals and as well as the oppressive regime you had of the vampire as well. So I could see a certain kind of uh, a communist cut price Delta Green working behind the Iron Curse and trying to, you know, yeah. with no resources and the crushing bureaucracy to deal with, as well mm-hmm. as all the other stuff. That right. Um, yeah, the um, the GRU SV8, this, this um, sort of the Soviet Delta Green program, is its own challenge and would be its own challenge to write. Um, I have uh, talked about, for Trail of Cthulhu, doing... Um, uh, bloodhounds of moscow where you play sort of very low level nkvd guys who stumble on the mythos and are like on the other hand if i say anything about it i will be killed (laughs) (laughs) and i really don't want barry to get his hands on this stuff (laughs) and then sort of rats of the walls uh old school delta green approach even but with the omnipresent horror of totalitarianism everywhere and i think that'd be that'd be a, a, a fun Fun is the wrong word. That would be an interesting campaign to to, to, to write and play, but again, the the amount of time that that would take is is high. So unless got someone's got bags of gold for you to be able to write right. that. Thing. Exactly. Or if I can say uh, to Gareth, you know what, Gareth, what if communist uh, mythos hunting? Yeah. <laughs> I like it. We're still friends when you talk to him. <laughs> well, I have to be now. Callback, guys. He's not answering your calls, right? No. Right, yeah, he, he's got to see that dot fr on the email before he opens it. <laughs> so, Garris, we meet again. He's a, yeah, he's a great guy's guy. We, we spoke to him a few weeks ago. Oh yeah, he's well. amazing. I mean, it, he's just so prolific, and it, it seems we're sort of asking about scenario writing and things like that, which he just seems to be able to just flows out of it without him even thinking Gareth about is, it. Gareth is a real natural. I mean, at this, he's one of the one of the best, purest natural talents. And I don't mean it, it's like you know, Michael Jordan was a great natural talent at basketball, who also worked harder at basketball than any other two people. Gareth is very that same approach. He has this immense natural gift of storytelling and seeing these things sort of from a, a bird's eye view and looking at the structure of it, but also just immense amounts of experience, you know, uh, having been raised on the heavy gravity, the gravity planet of mongoose. Uh, <laughs> now that he's on earth, he's, he's, he's superhuman because he's got his, his Bertonian blood cells. It's amazing. Yeah. Gareth is, is someone that is just a, a, and he's a delight as a human being, which is kind of unfair, frankly. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely cheating on his character points when he's been yeah. and stuff. Right. <laughs> so, uh, how what's your approach to collaboration? Though, do, do you kind of like just bounce a couple of ideas off people, and then like to go and do your own thing, or do you like a, like a steady flow of swapping ideas between? It, it depends on the collaborator. I mean, with someone like Gareth, who I am very much in sympath in, in simpatico to, and very tightly, we see things from similar parallax. Gareth and I during uh, Dracula dossier had a chat open on Skype. It was just a typed Skype chat that we just kept open for two years. <laughs> and it was just one of us would ping and then the other would ping. And if we we're both awake, we'd go on Skype and talk and just bounce stuff off each other. And I'd say, Hey Gareth, do something with this. And he would come back with four genius ideas. And I would say, yes, Gareth, that one, that genius idea, that's the good one. Um, and, uh, and then he'd busy off and do it. And I'd produce stuff and and he would come back. I mean, with uh, with Dracula dossier, it was my project, and Gareth was 
uh, working with me on it and of course making it much better than I ever could have myself and doing great job. If there's a project where I'm a genuine collaborator, like in the Star Trek games, some of those are going to be, you know, there's going to be the time when you have the meeting and everyone hashes out how this stuff should work. And then you go off and you write your thing and you bring it back. And it's, 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 it's a, it's, it's a group flow or whatever. Um, And then there are people that uh, I can work with and I can say, go off and do a thing. And then they come back and give me a thing and I change it and we're done because I know what they're going to come up with. And either the time frame or the scope of the project doesn't require us to have, you know, a, a, a year long Skype chat going. So it, it, it really, it's a, it, it very much depends on the individual collaborator. I mean, and then some people are like, Oh, that wasn't very good. I guess I've learned a lesson. And then you just sort of have to, you know, take your hit and move on. And hopefully that doesn't happen very often, but it's the nature of the beast. And if I write everything myself, it, it takes forever because I am uh, providing the, the Kenneth Height feeling. Uh, sometimes uh, my patented one hour of research per paragraph model um, <laughs> is not necessarily an economic one in every possible product. <laughs> sure. So how do you see your um, Gersian play? We've touched on the, the Dracula dossier then, and, and there's a convention, a little one in, in the UK called Longcon, where the idea is that you go there and you, you just play the one right, game yeah. over a weekend, and that's the idea. And I know last time a couple of guys, well, half a dozen guys, played the game, but they had the, the veranda and the um, the back of this pub, basically, it is, and that was their gaming table. So they could put mm-hmm. up, like, whiteboards, and they were, they were, like, you know, pinning maps and putting red string across it. And, you know, by the end of the weekend, people just come in just to look at the table because we just covered all this stuff, and they're like, we've nearly got him, and they're, like, smoking cigarettes down to the butt and that kind of thing. Yep. But I don't necessarily think that's how everybody plays that game but no but it's <laughs> but it's but it's certainly one of the ways to play knights black agents that was in my head when i was writing that much less the dossier and the dossier is meant to lean into a lot of that sort of crazy wall and string and you know uh the other half of the wire not the fun omar half but the poor bastards of the police department <laughs> have to figure out what's going on half and uh and yeah the, the, when i saw the the social media on that long con session i was like this is great this is you, when you make a game, you dream of people who sort of pick it up and run with it like those guys did. Mm-hmm. And then that was terrific. But, you know, you don't have to you don't have to do it that way. You can you can take a breath. <laughs> <laughs> you play it like a normal person. Right. Yeah. yeah. But do you have any mind? Do you have any of that in mind when you're writing stuff? Or are you just like really just putting down good ideas on a page and hoping that somebody gets use out of it? Or have you, do you have as part of design goal, like how it might play out? I mean, you want to think about the table experience because that's what you're producing, right? It's, you're not making a movie where you can just watch a rush and say, well, there you go. That spaceship did move. Good for me. Done. You have to think, what's it going to do when it hits the table? What are game masters going to do with it? What are players going to do with it? And you have to sort of be sort of aware of that um, and and ready for, for those kind of responses. And what you do is you try and put things in that pillar up the kind of play that you want to see so for example in knights black agents when i ran my alpha version of it when i was convincing myself i could use a gumshoe mechanics to do a thriller my players resisted ever doing the crazy map they didn't want to draw out a to they said that's nonsense that's bookkeeping we hate it and i was like but it's part of the fun right (laughs) so i put a system that bribes you to do it right <laughs> if you've drawn a diagram you get a point to attack the guy you just diagrammed that's just a straight up pellet and yeah so you're thinking about what do i want to encourage behavior wise and some of it is you know you want to encourage 
you know, long oration, give your give some reason to have those orations at the table. If you're thinking this is going to be a game for for theater people to really, you know, bust themselves up over, you provide that emotional core like we did with Vampire. But you also want to say, look, if you just came home from work and you just want to kill things, how can I make that happen for you? Right. And no one game group is all game groups. And so I think if you're thinking only about one game group, you're maybe closing your game off a little. But uh, a lot of story games are very much about that one specific experience that I want this thing to happen at the table. My story game, Last Flight of KG-200, uh, which is about being on the last bomber out of Nazi Berlin and you're terrible people. Uh, righteous supernatural doom is coming for you. I knew what I wanted that table to feel like, and I ran it at Metatopia a few times, and guess what? That's what it felt like. That's mm. So story games, I think, tend to focus in on that one specific brand of experience, that this is the feeling we want to evoke. This is the, the, the emotional state we want to put people in. This is the kind of play we have. That's why we've got very structured rules that set that out. Whereas trad games are all over the map. It's like, we don't know what you are. You may be a werebear who fights penguins. You may be a dilettante who studies the Necronomicon. You might be an elf. You could be a ninja. I mean, we're not the boss of you. Go nuts. And then really what you're just trying to do is make something that the rackets along and plays fast and it is fun and it evokes the source material so that when you're playing it, you're if you're playing you know an F20 game, your mental vision of Lord of the Rings is helping you, not hurting you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, Kent, we talked a lot about your writing. I just wonder, and there's a danger this is not a short answer. I apologise in advance. Um, <laughs> Much like every question ever asked to me. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'll try this one for size. So, um, as, at the time of recording, it's World Book Day tomorrow. I don't uh-huh. know if World Book Day crosses the border into America. Maybe it's like the reverse of baseball. I think it's like the know, World Cup. We know that it exists, but, you know, right. we have American Book Day. That's the really important <laughs> one. <laughs> so the idea is everybody's supposed to read tomorrow. It's not like the World Series. Right? Not in any other days. <laughs> Tomorrow's the only day you're allowed to read. So That's what right. are you reading at the moment, Ken? <laughs> um, right now I am reading a book called Cat Sense, which is a collection of modern uh, anthrozoolo- or anthrozoological and uh biological research about cats animal animal cognitive research is is ticking along my understanding which maybe the book will change is that studying cats is uh doomed because only about a third of cats ever take part in studies (laughs) you can get mice to run a maze for cheese you can get dogs to do literally anything but most cats the majority of cats are like grad students they're like eh Keep your five bucks. <laughs> and, French, basically, aren't they? Exactly. There's, there's a quality there. Um, and so I'm I'm always interested. And, you know, obviously I have a, a cat who I am very fond of, uh, Virgil. But, uh, but I, I, you know, I'm interested to see what people think my cat thinks. And maybe they're wrong. Maybe they're right. But it's it's great fun. I'm, I just finished uh, Mystery by Nicholas Freeling. And I may read another one because I got a pile of them at the store where I got that one. I've got a book that I kind of wish I'd had three years ago or four years ago called um, Who is Dracula's Father, which is by a British sort of literary pop lit writer, I guess. And he's got unanswered questions about Dracula, many of which I answered three years ago, but one or two of which are like, oh, that would have fit in the book. That would have been nice. Let's see what else. There's a book on 
Greek fortifications uh, in the Mediterranean that I'm about halfway through. It's an Osprey book. So halfway through means I, I got through the first 60 pages and I stopped and now I've the next 20 pages, but it's, uh, but, but I'm in that just uh, because I'm staying au courant with the Hellenistic era. There's probably another couple of things that have got bookmarks in them, but I've forgotten I'm reading them, which is about the way that it normally works. And then there's a the big stack of books that, uh, that I uh, dive into for research. Like there's a book that I just got called, I think it's called Legends of the Fall, which is about, no, it's after the fall. It's about um, uh, the uh, end in Vietnam in the fifties, the French uh, Indochina experience and the Americans sort of picking up the pieces. And I've been going in and out of that for research while I'm writing um, uh, uh, stuff for Fall of Delta Green. Mm-hmm. So in, in a way I'm halfway through a bunch of books on the Vietnam war, just because that's what I've been, you know, sort of reading about for work but that doesn't really count as books i'm reading i guess or maybe it does you tell me i don't know how you run world book day <laughs> well the, the way i run it is uh, <laughs> apparently you have to you have to pick a book that you would recommend to someone now bear in mind before you answer that one i teach primary school so they're 10 years old ken just mere seedlings in this world what book should i be reading to my children tomorrow what book should you be reading to your 10-year-old children tomorrow? Goodness me, what really? do I want to do to your 10-year-old children? I would say if your 10-year-old children have not uh, read or heard of the Crestomancy books by okay. Diana Wynne-Jones, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. lovely fantasy. It's great. If I discovered it when I was 10, I would have been a happier 10-year-old. I discovered it when I was 40. Wow. But I think maybe um, if they're advanced readers, if uh, if they're what I was reading when I was ten, that uh, I think Crestomancy would be good, and it's and it's it's fun and it's it, it it's strong and it's a and Diana Wynne Jones doesn't get nearly enough love. Mm-hmm. I don't know why you guys didn't bury her in Westminster Abbey, just <laughs> throw out one of those time serving jerks, um, uh, Isaac Newton. He can go. Oh yeah, Newton maybe. <laughs> what did he do? Newton can stay, but friggin' William Davenant. The guy who just did nothing but ruin Shakespeare his whole life. Get him out of there. <laughs> Put Diana Wynne-Jones in his hole. It's a, she's amazing. And no one no one loves her enough. So, yeah, I would say, you know, read the first Crest Wancy book, which I forget what it is. But <laughs> Good call. You can put it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> As podcasters say, which, right. which is another thing you know something about. How's that going? Have you run out of anything to talk about yet, or is the uh, no? That's the great thing about that's the great thing about uh, being buddies with Robin is we we did that podcast for twenty years before we realized we could record it and monetize it. Yeah, (laughs) and it was Robin and Ken just you know talk about stuff. We just did it at bars at conventions and the hotel rooms. So doing this is just you know as long as Robin or I are around. Uh, we're never going to run out of fun things to say to each other. And then the universe keeps cooperating by digging up, you know, uh, mummies and electing weirdos to mm-hmm. high office. And we've, we've got vast quantities of material. And then even stuff that we thought we'd already done. I, I forget how many, we were like 300 episodes in before he said, hey, we haven't actually done Spring Hill Jack. And so we did Spring wow. Hill Jack. So <laughs> you have, you know, these things that we're like, are, are we sure we didn't do that guy already? I guess we didn't. And off we, off we go to the races. And then another bit of it is that as long as Robin and I are working on stuff, then we have stuff to plug. So uh, (laughs) Robin's uh, Yellow King game comes out uh, pretty soon this year once the printer disgorges it. And so we've been talking about the 1890s occult revolution in France, and that's a big thing. And there's lots of uh, specialist stuff that we can make unspecialist. 
uh, for the gaming audience. Yeah, I hope it catches on. This two old white guys talking about gaming. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I think it's um uh, I think it's a bold new material. <laughs> I, think, I think people are tired of diverse voices. They just want to hear the same voices they've heard for twenty five hundred years. That's what they want. Yeah. As they we rush back about nineteen ninety one again. The, the, the peace and safety of a new dark age. That's that's what they're that's what they're aching for. No, I mean, I mean one of the things that uh, does uh, sort of keep Robin and, and my stuff well, fresh is maybe a strong word, but interesting is that Robin and certainly Robin is always out there looking for new stuff in, you know, in film. I'm sort of doing the same thing, not as well as Robin, uh, story of my life. Uh, but you know, I, I find new books that I haven't read by new people that I haven't heard of. And I explore that. And as long as you are a creative person in any creative field, you're doing yourself a disservice. If the only stuff you read is stuff you were reading in 1991 or 1971 or whatever. I mean, there's, I'm never going to be the guy who says don't read Sherlock Holmes, but there's a lot of other stuff besides Sherlock Holmes out there to read. So, you know, that's one of the great things is that if you go to an art gallery or you go to a, a concert or you go to a, a film festival, there's going to be people who are, you know, by God born this century, pretty soon who will be, making amazing things that you never even thought of existing. And that's valuable to take on board because the last thing that you want to be is the guy who's making material only for old white guys yeah. uh, or old people of any collation. You want to be making stuff that, that is, is relevant and that people care about and that people are interested in picking up. And again, God knows I love old white guys. I am old white guys, but if that's the only people I'm talking to, I'm failing as a creator in a lot of ways. Yeah, sure. Talking of, um, books and stuff have you read anything about mark galliotti yeah he's amazing he's terrific i've I've read his uh a couple his osprey book on the russian army i've looked at a lot of his stuff on organized crime i've got his book on the vor which i uh, have not yet had a business case to actually read all the way through but i've you know dug into it um yeah mark's amazing he's uh and he's written uh runequest stuff right yeah he wrote uh mythic russia for uh, right yeah hero quest yeah so, yeah, I mean, that's terrific. And, and Russian mythology is bonkers anyway. Yeah, quite. I think it's, it's quite interesting. There are some games like that. Another friend of mine who lives in Iceland has done uh, Mythic Iceland, funnily enough. Yeah, right. He's originally Brazilian, but he yeah. lives out there now. Which it, it's, how- it's easily, it's easily um, uh, Iceland's best Brazilian designer, I would say. <laughs> Top five. I don't think it's close. <laughs> I- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but do you think there's... Um, there's still plenty of market out there for things like that because it seems to me like for people who are less well-read and, and most people are less well-read than you are, to be fair, uh, but me and Baz D try to read the odd book. But there is a lot of stuff that's actually in our own history of the world that could easily be turned into a role-playing game or just slightly nudged and moulded a little bit. So is there anything out there you think is perhaps a, a deep, rich vein of role-playing opportunity that perhaps no one's had the opportunity yet to make a game out of? I think there's a lot of things. I mean, that's why I say start with Earth, that everything that you do should begin with earth because someone has done all the reading and mapping and looking things up for you. And you just have to go to the library and find them much faster, much easier than making up some magical continent that no one cares about, you know, write something said in some awesome continent that people do care about. I certainly hope that people find the Hellenistic period, uh, fascinating. There's a real paucity of pop culture about it. Uh, I think there's one or two sort of PDF game releases about it, uh, that are out. But uh, when I do Hellenistica uh, for 5e with John Hodgson, 
I'm hoping that that sort of blows the doors open and lets people understand, oh, right, this literally was a fantasy setting. It just happened to happen in the third century BC, that there were bags of gold lying around because the uh, the, the, the money inflation had been so high that they just couldn't spend all that money. There was no economic reason to uh, after uh, Alexander takes the Persian treasury away. There's a common language for everyone from the pillars of Hercules to the Ganges Valley, right? If you speak Greek and can stab a guy, you can get work stabbing people. That's, <laughs> that's the D&D way. <laughs> There's cool monsters and, and uh, a million gods to pay attention to and fear. Uh, there's uh, big cities full of guys who will sell you a resurrection spell. I mean, in our history, those didn't work, but they were there, right? Um, uh, and all of that great vein of material, it's an area where literally you have clubs of people who go out and do adventures for patrons back in a bar. It's yeah. it's a common thing. There's a there's a social structure around that in Hellenistic, uh, in the Hellenistic East, and it's it's an amazing period of of relative social mobility for the for the ancient world as well. Uh, relative uh, acceptance of women. Certainly, the Greeks didn't have racism. They thought if you spoke Greek, you were real, and if you didn't speak Greek, it didn't matter. So they uh, they had ethn ethnocentrism out the wazoo, but it's a different thing. But even then. So many new people were speaking Greek that the old ethnos was breaking down. So it's it's um, uh, in a way it's it's kind of a, a, a more recognizable period than the Romans, who are sort of like if Tokugawa Japan uh, was also the um, uh, the freaking Star Wars Empire, <laughs> they're they're all very you know uh, lockstep and, and superstitious and, and weird. But the Greeks are like whatever, man. If, if you can make it work, we'll pay you money and stab a guy. And you've got super weapons being invented by Archimedes. I mean, all this great stuff is happening. And no one's, there's barely any novels about it. There's no movies, except for Jason and the Argonauts, God bless them. There's, you know, there's nothing of that era. And I think it's just, it's just sitting there lying around in chunks to be turned into game material. So I'm hoping that, you know, Hellenistic does that. But yeah, there's tons of things. I mean, no one's done anything really with India as a game setting. And, you know, you talk about your, your, your um, untapped vein of material. Uh, Indian history is ludicrously fascinating. Bollywood is some of the most richest, richly inventive cinema in the world. Uh, a deep mind of story. Why? Why is there not? Why? Why is in Indian uh, uh, fantasy not a giant thing? Why? Why is not everyone able to rattle off um, uh, the the Mahabharata the way that you can the Iliad? It's just it's just weird that that doesn't happen. So. Someone needs to do a bunch of Indian games. And now that we have tons and tons of, of uh, NRI uh, and Desi community uh, Indians in America and Britain, maybe one of them could do it and, you know, open up gaming for another billion English speakers. Uh, <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> but you do run the very real risk of being able to make a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. No, that multi that's everybody in the RPG. Right, yeah. But again, I mean... Maybe that, you know, we were talking about, you know, being an old white guy. Maybe that's not my job is to present Indian gaming for the market. Maybe my job is to find some Indian creator and say, hey, man, or or, or ma'am, I don't know, make a make a game about fantasy game about India. What can I do to help you? How can I signal boost you? How can I write some part and get a uh, cover credit? You know, whatever. Right. But I want to I want to see people 
go into these veins that are familiar to them and not familiar to me. And that's another great thing that story gaming does is it lets people tell stories about their own self and then their own sort of experiences and, and look at things through different lights. I mean, Eloy Lasanta uh, has a great game about colonialism that is sort of based on stuff that he's experienced and, and read about. Uh, I've read tons of stuff about colonialism, but it was from the other side. So maybe it's not um, uh, ideal to do those games. So yeah, I, I think that there's tons of stuff. You just dig anywhere and you'll find it. And there's, there's Chicago is uh, like, uh, like every other great city full of a million stories. Uh, I've, I haven't done a great Chicago book yet, but I've done one on London. That was literally just look at a history of London, take out the game parts, mm-hmm. sell it to Simon. That was that was all I did. <laughs> yeah, good friends of the show, Paul mentioned that, along with friends like uh, Neil Gow, who did G Channel and stuff like that. They just released their game Liminal, mm-hmm. or game Liminal, which is all about um, British. Sorry, it's, I guess it's a bit like American Gods, but with sort of twee American, uh, British folklore and things like that. So that's right, like right. a good... They've gone around digging their hometowns for all the folk tales and... Exactly. Stories yeah. and, and whatever, and, and, and produced a game out of that. So there's definitely uh, a vein there to be tapped. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what Lovecraft taught us all, or should have, is that look in your own backyard. It's creepier than anywhere you can make up. For sure. So I, we're getting sort of close to time now, but I just wanted to ask, we ask all our uh, guests this, is, are there any other games that you've been looking at or played or interested at the minute that you could perhaps recommend to our listeners? Let's see, games I can recommend. Um, right, I mean, right now I'm in the middle of a 13th Age campaign, which is terrific if uh, you're looking for that D&D feeling. Uh, and it's the opposite of zero to hero. It's hero to even heroer. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it's, very, uh, it's very fun to play and very fast. Uh, uh, it, it does the things that I want in an F20 game without bogging down endlessly. Uh, the combats are still big and showy and exciting and full of stuff, but that's literally the point of the game. Uh, so I'm having a great deal of fun with that. Um, uh, my friend, a fellow Chicago designer, Nathan Pauletta, is uh, finishing up his game Imp of the Perverse, which is about horror in frontier America in the 1830s uh, and urban America as well. But it's Edgar Allan Poe-inspired horror, and it's going to be terrific. Alex Roberts, of course, just came out with Starcrossed, which is probably mm-hmm. one of the best games of the year, if not the best game of the year. It's a romance game. I talked previously about how, gosh, maybe entire central point of Western literature should have a game or two about it. She's uh, came, come up with that. Uh, Billy Pulpit has released it. It's available, I think, now. Um, so run right out and do that. And uh, her new her next game, For, For the Queen, is, is coming out pretty soon, too. She's a, another great game designer. It's just going from strength to strength to strength. I mean, I'm sure there's a million other examples. I can only play so many games at once. Um, I go to... I go to Metatopia and I play games that will be out in three years, if at all. Um, so I'm kind of, I'm not always sure what's out when, but uh, but I, I would say, you know, I'm on Kickstarter and apparently you can follow people on Kickstarter. I didn't even know that was a thing, but people are welcome to follow me on Kickstarter and see what I, what catches my idiot jackdaw eye. And <laughs> it won't be any dumber than anything else you do on Kickstarter. I promise you that. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's where that's where you go for money these days, right? Kickstarter. I mean, it's, it's a, in, in the lifetime of you as a as a writer getting published, Kickstarter's a big thing. It's a yeah, no, it's it's a major thing. Just the ability to crowdfund, and it's it's not done changing everything. Uh, we're still seeing sort of knock on effects uh, in retail. We're seeing uh, the effect of games that are only available to a, a subset of the audience now, which is not the thing we thought was going to be the problem. We're seeing, uh, but the ability to just go to your audience and say. 
hey, does anyone want to play a Edgar Allan Poe horror game set in the 1830s? You couldn't have gone to a publisher with that. And for Nathan to do a game as good as Nathan wanted to do it, it takes money. And so he went to Kickstarter, and it's amazing. Uh, other designers have other experiences with it. It's not a substitute for having an audience, uh, obviously. It, many p- people launch Kickstarters and discover that it, there's, a, there's a lot of signal and a lot of noise, and it's very hard to parse anything. But in terms of having the option, it's it's a game changer. You don't have to necessarily sell a publisher on something if you think you can sell your audience on it. And that's yeah. the whole point of, of making good things is so that an audience will then follow you and say, yeah, ordinarily, I wouldn't care about the Hellenistic period, Ken, but you're on it. I'll give it a whirl. I'll pay attention. I'll see what's mm-hmm. going on. And that's yeah. just a great opportunity to have. And it saves your manuscript sitting on Steve Jackson's slush pile. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it has well, survived some of the old stuff as well, doesn't it? Because I've seen that Mercy Spies and Private Eyes is being... Yeah, started. right. And I saw that it's being re-kickstarted, which is, which is lovely. Um, yeah. And like they used to say on... Uh, there was a TV network in America that used to run reruns, and the uh, tagline was, if you haven't seen it, it's new to you. <laughs> True. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think anyone has seen Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes. I mean... I, I have, but I'm terrifyingly old, as we've discussed already. <laughs> but it's going to be super new, and I don't. I haven't looked at the program to find out if they're updating the rule set or changing the rule set at all, or if it's just the same old banging around hero that it was back in the day. I think it, it more or less is. They've turned it up a lot. It, it's very, it's quaint. The Kickstarter it makes me smile because nah. they're doing these Kickstarters. They can print a hundred copies and have them sat there to sell to people, sort of thing. <laughs> it's just like so. It's not done properly. Kickstarter. And the bit where I was looking forward to say there's a new adventure or something is the extra stuff. The extra right. content included things like we've now included vehicle stopping distances. Well, the thing that was missing from Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes was vehicle stopping distances. Yeah, but it just well, there's not... an audience for that. I, you know. I felt like your granddad's done a Kickstarter. He doesn't quite know how it works, but he's, you know, he's done one. I felt like I've got to back it now. I just have to help you guys get your book published together. It feels like you need and, that. And again, it was it was a great game at the time. And if you like oh, the definitely. Euro system, yeah, yeah. it is it is good stuff. And it uh, <laughs> and it does it. Um, and again, God knows, I well, I've worked for Steve Jackson long enough. I know that the stopping distances people are there. <laughs> it's an audience, and if and if you can if you can touch their weird little car and driver heart or their guns and ammo heart, which are overlapping hearts in many cases, then you'll have them for life. Absolutely brilliant. Right. Well, I think we've we've gone over an hour, unfortunately, so we're going to have to leave it there. Ken, thanks very much for coming on. It's been a delight. No, absolutely. You. Thanks for having me. Uh, real pleasure, Ken. Thank you so much. No, thanks, guys. And we'll have to circle back sometime and get you on again to talk more about uh, stopping distances in the Hellenic period and other such That's right. We'll, we'll talk nothing yeah, except, uh, except pile of throw weights. That'll be a, <laughs> a whole hour. Awesome. Thanks again, Ken.